Spend time understanding how other people think and why they think that way. For example, I've dedicated my life to trying to understand China's worldview. So understanding the Chinese philosophical tradition, the literary tradition, how communists, uh, uh, Marxist-Leninists think, understanding what shapes current Communist Party thinking, understanding whether it's uh, how China thinks, how Japan thinks, how Germany thinks, how France thinks, um, how India thinks. This is an invariably a good investment of time. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Kevin Rudd. Kevin is a president and CEO of the Asia Society, a global nonprofit that works to foster closer ties between Asia and the West. Previously, he served as a 26th Prime Minister of Australia and as Foreign Minister. He led Australia's response during the global financial crisis and helped shape the global recovery through his leadership of the G20. He began his career as a China scholar serving as an Australian diplomat in Beijing before entering Australian politics. Kevin is a distinguished China scholar and a leading voice on Asian affairs. He is the author of an important new book, The Avoidable War, The Dangers of a Catastrophic Conflict Between the U.S. and Xi Jinping's China. This is my second podcast episode with Kevin, and if you'd like to hear more about his upbringing, earlier career in Australian politics, and much else, you can find our first episode linked in this description. Kevin, it's a rare combination indeed to find a former prime minister who was also a top China scholar, a fluent Mandarin speaker, and a top geopolitical strategist. None of us has enough time to read everything we would like to, but I sure try to read everything that you write, and you write a lot. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. So congratulations on the release of your new book, The Avoidable War. Kevin, what motivated you to write this book? Well, thanks, uh, Hank, and it's great to be able to spend time uh, with you on this important subject. I suppose there are two reasons for doing this, uh, Hank. One is that things have uh, deteriorated significantly between the United States and China for a series of structural reasons to do with the balance of power between the two countries, but also uh, the further turbocharging of structural problems by the particular leadership direction of Xi Jinping and the reactions which that's generated around the world, including in the United States. And so as things progressively get sharper and sharper in that relationship, I thought it was time to start thinking about the unthinkable, which is could this degenerate into crisis, conflict and war in the future? And most particularly, what could we do to avert that outcome? And there's a second reason. My friend and colleague from Harvard, Graham Allison, uh, wrote a book about four or five years ago now called Destined for War about Thucydides' trap. And um, Graham and I are colleagues and friends, but I think he'd be the first to concede that the end of his book does not easily provide a way out of Thucydides' trap. Uh, what I've sought to do here is to put forward a recommendation, what I call managed strategic competition, as a way of reducing the possibility that we do end up in crisis, conflict, and war. That's about it. Those two core reasons, I think. I tell you, it's a timely, timely book indeed. And of course, today we're witnessing a war in Ukraine, which is roiling geopolitics and impacting U.S.-China relations in a very significant way. We'll get to that shortly. But let's start with some of the basics. 
You devote a substantial portion of your book to framing China's core priorities in long-term strategy. And you're right that the number one priority for Xi and the party is staying in power. Why is this the case? In large part, I think it's because of the nature of the Marxist-Leninist party. Remember the Communist Party, uh, Hank, has just celebrated its 100th anniversary. It came about in 1921, came about in response to a sense of crisis in China, not long after the collapse of the Chinese uh, empire, the last emperor back in 1911. It came about as China started to split down the middle with warlords racing right across the northern part of the country. And about this stage, we'd also had the Bolshevik revolution uh, in, uh, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. And so in this tumult, you saw the Chinese Communist Party emerge with a sense of historical mission. So the historical mission was to obviously bring about a socialist revolution within the country. But the other part of the mission was a nationalist mission, which was to unite China and to once again make it strong and powerful in the world. And these two animating principles, a wealthy China and a powerful China, Fuchang, the two Chinese characters, became this sort of animating goal over the century of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, existence. So for those reasons, successive leaders of the Chinese Communist Party have believed that they have a mandate, not from heaven, but a mandate from Marx. Uh, to uh, sustain the revolution in order to um, bring China to the point where it is the major power in the world again. That's the core reason for it. And for Xi Jinping personally, his own self-image, in my view, is of a, uh, who's, he's a person who sees himself as a man of destiny to take China through to the point where it has become the most powerful country economically, militarily and technologically in the region and the world and therefore navigating China's course on the way through to that. So for those reasons, I think number one, two, and three priority for Xi and the party is to keep the party in power, by whatever means, and to keep Xi in power within the party, by whatever means. Well, it's a critical point, Hank. I'm glad you've raised it. You know, there's a school of um, academic analysis called authoritarian resilience theory. It's kind of interesting because, you know, after the collapse of the... Uh, Soviet Union and the uh, the coming down of the uh, the Berlin Wall. There was a general view for some decades that we're end heading for an inevitable destination point in history, which Fukuyama called the end of history, where we all ended up as happy liberal democratic capitalists at the end of the day. However, by the time we get through the 90s and into the first decade of this century, you start to see a number of these authoritarian regimes survive. And in fact, some of them thrive. And that has very much been the case with communist China. What haunted very much the post-91 leadership of the People's Republic of China was what they saw as the collapse of not just the Soviet Union and the dismemberment of what was this vast territorial expanse, but also the collapse of the CPSU, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. And therefore, the Chinese in the 90s and the noughties began a series of, um, of research programs to analyze why did communism fail? Why did the CPSU collapse? Why did the Soviet Union dismember? What can we learn from that in terms of the resilience of the Chinese Communist Party in order to survive into the future? And what you see, I think, is a series of measures adopted a combination of Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao to make the Chinese Communist Party more responsive to people's needs in the hope that they would be able to survive the party as a Leninist party into the future. That has been hanging over the head of the party for a long time. 
And Xi Jinping, of course, has had his own separate response to that Soviet Communist Party conundrum. So, Kevin, I think many of us never expected China to become a liberal Western democracy. We always expected the Chinese Communist Party to be primary. But what took some of us by surprise was she really doubling down on the party. And first of all, moving to clean it up, to purge it, to mitigate the corruption and to uh, aggregate personal power but then to use the party as the primary vehicle to govern rather than the state. So while uh, Xi Jinping is talking about governing through the party, you had Zhang Zemin, for instance, talking about the party being the big tent and bringing, you know, bringing the elites into the party. And, and she's saying, to heck with that. The party is is the primary vehicle. and We're going to put the party in everything and govern through the party. So it's been it's been a pretty dramatic change. Now, another core priority for Xi and the party is ensuring economic prosperity. Well, Hank, you're right to point to the nature of changes which have been brought in by Xi Jinping. Go back to this question of authoritarian resilience. Deng, Zhang and Hu had their own formula for this, which was open up the economy, open up the internationalization of the Chinese economy, create more individual space for people in their private lives and also create almost a Chinese uh, civil society through NGOs and the like. And they saw this as actually the way in which you could ensure the long-term resilience of a Communist Party-run China. Xi Jinping's approach has been quite the reverse. Uh, Rather than, as it were, uh, small d, democratizing economics and politics, as his predecessors sought in one way or another to do, Xi Jinping saw this as uh, beginning to rot the fish. And so as a consequence, you've seen a series of, frankly, contractions of political power. You've seen him doubling down on individual leadership control of the party. You've seen, as you've just said, the fact that Xi Jinping has also reasserted the power of the party over the professional policy apparatus of the Chinese state. You've seen state-owned enterprises resume a stronger role over the private sector. You've seen NGOs put under greater control. And you see greater surveillance through social credit scores and the rest of individuals' behaviour. And that's been Xi Jinping's quite different response to authoritarian resilience in the long term. There's an open question as to which will be more successful or not. Another core priority for Xi and the party is ensuring economic prosperity. How do you see China's economic outlook in the near term and over the longer term? I am somewhat concerned that the measures which Xi Jinping has taken to pivot politics to the left and the economy also to the left will be to slow growth over time. And the reason for that is uh, the nature of the Chinese private sector, which, as you know from your extensive work in the country, Hank, over such a long period of time generates more than 60% of Chinese gross domestic product, the vast bulk of Chinese innovation, and a huge slice of employment generation in the country. But these guys and girls in the Chinese private sector in the last several years have begun to have less confidence in the market-oriented nature of China's overall economic policy set. And therefore, the animal spirits within the Chinese economy have been somewhat tamed by the re-emergence of the Chinese party state. And therefore, I think that has had a stultifying effect on growth. If I was to translate it into numbers, I would think that you're going to see, as a consequence of a private sector more in retreat, you'll see growth numbers come down from six to five to four to even three, and therefore greater recourse to public 
uh, policy stimulus in order to fill the growth gap needed in order to keep employment full. So, you know, I, I agree with the point you just made with one addition, and that is, I think uh, she is going to find that moving the economic strategy to the left, in addition to the politics, is not going to work. And he's flipped before on this, and he began by talking about uh, that the market was going to be the key determinant of allocating resources. And he's now moved and is now moving in another direction. And I think when he sees that this doesn't succeed, you have to see another change. But we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Kevin, some observers look at the dynamic we're seeing between the U.S. and China as Cold War 2.0. Others call it cooperative rivalry. But you have a different framing, managed strategic competition. Tell us a bit about how you coined this term and what it means. Talk about what this means. Yeah, I think underneath uh, all the language that's used both in Washington and Beijing and in third countries about the nature of the US-China relationship, the truth of the matter is when we peel away all the linguistic facade and go to the substance of it, these two countries and economies are engaged in a multi-layered competitive process where the end point is a competition for, frankly, which country and economy emerges as the most powerful economically, technologically, and in time, uh, militarily, and with the greatest global foreign policy and political footprint. If you read the Chinese internal documents, and that's part of the underpinnings for this book, it's pretty clear to me internally that's the Chinese end state. But let's just say the time we reach the middle of this century, 2049, the centenary of the founding of the People's Republic. Of course, Uncle Sam, the US of A, ain't going to roll over and there's a competitive race on. So here is my proposition, my core argument. You can either have a competitive relationship, a strategic competition between the United States and China, which is unmanaged, where there are no guardrails, where there are no rules of the road at all, even de minima rules of the road, or you can have a strategic competition which is managed with a minimal framework uh, for, as it were, ensuring that you don't accidentally, let alone by design, spiral off into crisis, conflict and war. So therefore, what I put forward on the table is, is there therefore such a framework which could be conjointly agreed between the most senior levels of the US administration and the Chinese government and party on a framework which could provide us at least with stability during the course of the 2020s. Some will describe putting together such a framework as naive. How could each side agree to that? Well, I'd offer one Cold War precedent for it, and that is even the Soviet Union and the United States after they nearly blew each other's brains out in the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, decided after that that there should be some rules of the road. And in the period after 62, you find that certain protocols did emerge between the two sides, which reduced the possibility of some shootout at the OK Corral. And on top of that, in time, led to the detente of the early 70s, and which in time, over time, produced breakthroughs also in nuclear disarmament. And eventually, if you like, produce the outcomes that we saw at the end of the 80s. Now, China's not going to sign up to its own demise through such a process, but they, there is some precedented for basically alien political systems agreeing on a modus vivendi with each other in order to reduce the risks of crisis, conflict and war erupting through misadventure. Now let's talk about, uh, Kevin, what we're seeing today in Ukraine. 
Let's start with the China-Russia relationship. What is the motivation here and how deep is it? Well, that is the critical question of our of our days, uh, Hank. But it falls, I think, in part within the potential framework of what we've just been discussing with managed strategic competition. The broad scheme there is how do you identify the narrow group of strategic red lines between these two countries, the US and China? How do you identify those areas of non-lethal strategic competition between the two countries? How do you ensure that there are still areas of defined strategic cooperation, like on climate, which you and I are passionate about, but in other domains as well? And how do you have a bunch of two or three senior officials on both sides of this relationship who become, if you like, the joint um, policemen of the relationship to ensure that this framework this de minima framework is adhered to. How does all that therefore apply to where we find ourselves with this triangle of Russia, uh, Ukraine, China at present, and of course, America's abiding strategic interests? Suppose my view is this, the United States still, here we are at this point of the 21st century, sees itself legitimately as the leader of the free world open democracies, open societies, and open economies. And therefore, it sees also through its um, alliance uh, relationships uh, in Europe, not a security and strategic commitment to the defense of Ukrainian soil, but a broader uh, responsibility coming from the UN Charter to assist a state whose territorial integrity has been violated by another nation state in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So where did the Chinese come into this equation? China's abiding strategic interests, I think, with the Russians are along these lines. They like the idea of a benign border between themselves and the Russians, because most of Russia-China history has been dominated by adverse relationships between Moscow and Beijing. Secondly, they prefer to be able to dedicate the bulk of their strategic energies to their primary strategic competition with the United States, rather than having to look behind their back at what's uh, happening in the Russia relationship just across their border. And thirdly, they don't mind the idea of the Russians creating other challenges for America and other parts of the world, like the Middle East, like North Africa, like Europe from time to time. And of course, Russia affords the Chinese a reasonable supply of primary commodities in energy and agriculture as well. However, does Xi Jinping regard this Russian invasion of Ukraine as uh, ultimately in China's interests? I think it's one of those issues, um, Hank, where the Chinese have had to put their hand or their fingers very much clasped over their nose and to watch uh, with a degree of anxiety what Putin wanted to do, seek not to criticise Russia in the public domain, Uh, seek to continue to support the Russians where they can economically without violating sanctions uh, against the Russians and therefore incurring the risk of secondary financial sanctions against China itself, while at the same time looking for some opportunity, some opportunity to play some sort of moderating role if this uh, military uh, conflict in Ukraine grinds into stalemate. And I think that's about where we're getting to at this stage. So what do you make of China's response to Russia's war in Ukraine? There are divisions in uh, the way in which Beijing looks at this war. Xi Jinping, mindful of China's deep strategic interests in Russia that we referred to before, mindful also of his personal relationship with Vladimir Putin, both seeing themselves as strong men of history. At the end of the day, the Chinese don't want to sacrifice those national and personal interests by pulling the rug from under Vladimir Putin's feet. The other set of interests is this. The Chinese are pragmatic enough to understand that by remaining silent on the war, 
and providing tacit diplomatic, political, and to some extent economic support for Russia during the war, that they are also suffering damage reputationally in Europe and in the rest of the world, and that is of concern to them. So therefore, given where we are at the moment, I don't see any radical moves on Beijing's part to rein Russia in. But if we do get to the stage where this is grinding into stalemate, which may be being evidenced by Russia's redesign of its war aims in recent times in Ukraine, that the Chinese may be at five minutes to midnight enter into the fray with a piece of diplomacy of their own in order to help perhaps negotiate some sort of ceasefire. But that stage hasn't been reached as of yet. But I think it'll be on the table when Xi Jinping gets together with the Europeans and others on what to do now about the unfolding stalemate in Ukraine itself. Let's switch gears a bit. What are your expectations for China's 20th Party Congress this fall? And to what extent do you think that will be impacted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine? As of the end of last year, uh, Hank, uh, and you know the country as well as I do, Xi Jinping uh, was looking forward to a relatively quiet year in 2022, hopefully a a global economy recovering from the pandemic-induced recession in order to have smooth and plain sailing towards uh, November when the Congress is held, because it's this Congress which will determine whether or not he's reappointed for a record third term. And if he is, likely to be leader, in my judgment, until uh, he's well into his 80s. And that takes us through to the 2030s. So this is a big stakes political year. But now, because of the Ukraine factor, there are some political headwinds. Uh, Given that uh, Putin's war in Ukraine has gone badly and that Xi Jinping is correctly perceived to be a friend and supporter of Putin's and in China is under some criticism for having gone so far out on a limb in supporting the Russian position, at least by virtue of his silence on the invasion, that if this turns out badly for Putin, there will be some rebound effect against Xi Jinping in the internal politics of the country. If you were to add to that piece of headwind a slowing economy, partly because of the economic policy settings that we discussed earlier on, partly because of other factors in terms of declining productivity growth, other factors in terms of demography, other factors in terms of supply chain effect on the overall state of the um, Chinese economy, and energy price-induced inflationary pressures as well. If you've got slower growth, much slower growth, that doesn't help with your re-elect either. Add to that, if the pandemic has now jumped the fence from Hong Kong across the border into Shenzhen, Shanghai now entering into various stages of lockdown, and Changchun up in the northeast of the country, something similar, uh, suddenly the Communist Party's narrative on pandemic management looks less convincing than it did before. So therefore, if I look forward to the politics of uh, what happens at the end of this year, Hank, at the 20th Party Congress, My prediction on balance is still that Xi Jinping will prevail, but it may be a much more contested political year than we had previously considered possible. And I think, you know, as most people look at this, they they think of it in terms of whether Xi gets another term. But it's obviously much bigger than that, because we're going to have many, you know, hundreds of senior Communist Party uh, leaders retiring and replaced by group of new leaders. This is an election. It's it's different than our election because most of it's going on beneath the surface, but it's a, an election nonetheless. Let's talk a little bit about U.S.-China. You know, we've just seen a decoupling between the West and Russia happening at an unprecedented speed and scale. 
scope, right? Does this suggest that a U.S.-China decoupling could go further and faster than we all thought just a few months ago? It's possible, but not in my judgment probable. Remember, the degree of uh, U.S. and Russian economic enmeshment across the board. Why I think these circumstances are different, Hank, is because... um, the degree of economic enmeshment between the Russian Federation and the United States is really quite marginal when compared with that between China and the US. Remember, when we look at Russia, we're looking at an economy about the size of Australia with a nuclear weapons arsenal, which is the biggest in the world. That's quite different from China and the United States, which are the world's two largest economies and the world's two largest militaries, by the way, as well. On the speed of decoupling between China and the United States, uh, even if there was political will across the board, Washington and Beijing to do so, the decoupling process would be formidably more complex. If you look at capital markets alone, your own fair area of deep expertise. This uh, two-way capital markets relationship between Chinese and American institutions, you're looking at a $5 trillion business. This is not a piece of loose change. And the degree of enmeshment, therefore, with all those institutions, all the investment houses, the banks, etc., debt market, bond markets, equities markets, uh, forex markets, the rest, it foreign direct investment. It is huge. Quite before you get on to trade, which was Donald Trump's obsession, uh, this is a huge relationship. So therefore, the idea that someone can just click their finger and it all stops overnight, I think is a nonsense. It can still be unwound, but it would be a very difficult, complex process over time. I agree with you. So I, I want to get back to your managed strategic competition. So in your book, you talk about U.S.-China distrust. The U.S. and China have very different histories, political systems, cultures, and some conflicting goals, but also some important shared interests. Do you think Biden and Xi have enough political room to cooperate and work in complementary ways when it is in their respective national interest to do so? We know that we can't expect them to work in ways we if it's not in our interest to do so, but when it is in our interest to do so, is there enough political room? And what do we need to do to build trust? Well, you're right, Hank, to point out that um, these two political leaderships, America and China, when they look at each other, it's not just, frankly, a product of what happened yesterday lunchtime. It's the accumulated product of historical experiences, one or the other, going back to the time of the Opium Wars. Uh, American traders have been active in China, including, by the way, in the opium trade itself, for the better part of 150, 200 years. And so the accumulated positive impressions, negative impressions, popular impressions, deeply cultural impressions and conclusions uh, over that span of time have constructed realities in one another's mind about the other. So therefore, we can't ignore that. It's there. Uh, Secondly, as a result of a series of events, you're right to say that strategic trust, political trust, has been eroded over time. But as an American admiral once said to me, uh, who had worked in uh, Pacific Command, PACOM, these days Indo-Pacific Command, uh, strategic trust is a much overrated thing. It's far better to go back to core national interests, which are mutually comprehended, and to anchor your collaborative relationships purely on an ongoing calibration of those interests. That's the basis of what I call managed strategic competition. It actually doesn't depend on trust. It depends on a quite brutal calculation of each other's interests and how you build 
step by step, a series of uh, engagements between the two on that calculus. I think that's a more credible way forward rather than waking up tomorrow morning, Hank, and saying, I feel like I finally trust you. You're not going to trust someone to do what's not in their basic interest, particularly if it's someone that is a strategic rival. So now how do you assess the U.S. strategy toward China pre-Ukraine invasion? And how is the U.S. managing the China relationship in the midst of the Russian invasion? And how can the U.S. best work with and leverage our allies in Asia and in Europe to establish a stable relationship? I think the um, important achievement that the current U.S. administration has delivered since it took office in January of uh, 2021 has been the rebuilding of the fabric of the alliance structure around the world. Uh, This had reached a state of some disrepair during the Trump administration. And so the repair work both with the alliances in Asia, particularly those with the ROK and, frankly, with uh, Japan, and those with Europe, uh, and not just with NATO, but with individual NATO member states. There was a lot of work to do. But, frankly, that has been done. And in addition to that, the United States has uh, also brought India into the Quad and uh, produced other sub-regional arrangements, like, for example, the new August proposal. So if I was to look at how the United States has gone about the process of uh, re-solidifying the fundamentals of its um, of its alliance posture and strength in responding to the China challenge, it's delivered some reasonable results. Secondly, when China looks at the pile of American allies in the world, in Asia and in Europe and elsewhere, and something like 46 treaty partners of the United States and the world. And you look at the Chinese pile where you've got North Korea. No one's particularly keen to have North Korea on their pile. you now got Russia, which is bogged down in the Ukraine. On a good day, you'll have Pakistan. Throw into that Myanmar under the dictatorship. Then you've got Laos, and then you've got Cambodia, and maybe Venezuela. Maybe Venezuela. Oh, and Cuba. That's kind of it. When the Chinese look at this, they think, Uh, Uncle Sam's not doing too badly. So I think that's one of the fundamental things that's happened in the last year or so, putting that house back in order. Makes me recall a a conversation I had years ago with a Chinese leader when I was giving him grief for doing things with with some dodgy government. And he looked me right in the eye and said, what are we supposed to do? You've got all the good allies. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, let's finish up with some advice for our younger listeners who are going to be living in a very different world than the one you and I grew up in. What advice would you give them for how to navigate their lives and careers in this new world? That's a tough uh, question, Hank, because the world is a different place. I grew up in the country in Australia in the 1960s and 70s and on a farm. And when I look at the world today and I look at my own kids and grandkids, a couple of little grandkids now, three, in fact, this is a vastly different reality. But I think a couple of truths remain, uh, which... uh, hopefully are as applicable for young people emerging today as it uh, was for us back then. I think the first thing I've said to um, classes that I've spoken to from Harvard to my own alma mater back in the Australian National University is spend some time at university uh, when you're in college working out what you believe in and why. (laughs) Actually having a value structure is a pretty important thing in public life or in corporate life and doesn't happen just out of thin air. You've got to think these things through. Read the great books. 
understand what you believe in in terms of, you know, Adam Smith or John Maynard Keynes, work your way through it. Uh, have a look at Das Kapital and understand how Marxists think. Look at uh, Friedman and uh, and look at the major competing uh, economic schools and the moral philosophers and the rest. Spending time on that when you've got time as a young person is very valuable because it helps create um, your own ethical or moral compass in life. Because as you know, Hank, from your own experience, none of our professional careers are ever a bed of roses, which just kind of, you know, move from one plane of achievement to the next, you run into a whole bunch of brick walls. I have. And as a result of that, you're thrown back on questions of basic you know, philosophical or theological belief and uh, and moral compass questions. I think the second thing is this, and the other piece of advice is spend time understanding how other people think and why they think that way. For example, I've dedicated my life to trying to understand China's worldview. I don't agree with all of it, but you know something? It's pretty important to understand uh, what it is and why our Chinese interlocutors think in the way in which they think, rather than simply demonizing them for the simple reason that they are radically different. So understanding the Chinese philosophical tradition, the literary tradition, how communists, uh, uh, Marxist-Leninists think, understanding what shapes current Communist Party thinking. And for example, work that I continue to work on today, such as what Xi Jinping's worldview, understanding whether it's uh, how China thinks, how Japan thinks, how Germany thinks, how France thinks, um, how India thinks. This is an in invariably a good investment of time, quite apart from the professional skills that you pick up as a, an economist or as a financial analyst or as a rocket scientist or as an astronaut. When you're looking at coming up with a strategy to compete, you sure better understand your competitor. And, you know, I, I, I think your advice is so, so good because understanding the other side is so critically important to everything we do. Almost every problem there exists, whether it's a big geopolitical problem or it's a business problem, almost every problem is a people problem. And unless you're a good listener, unless you have the empathy to understand the other side, you're going to have a hard time being successful. So Kevin, thank you. This has been terrific. Your book and this conversation has been timely and insightful in helping us, all of us, have a better understanding of the geopolitical world we're going to be navigating for the foreseeable future. So thank you very much. Thank you, Hank, for having me on your, um, on your podcast. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.